All right, Daniel chapter 4. You know, a brother reminded me yesterday um, that January 27th, yesterday, was National Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's not one of those happy, clappy holidays by any means, but it is a really important holiday where we remember the profound power of evil uh, to do really widespread damage. Um, We're going to read about a leader today uh, who fits into the shoes of many of the leaders within Nazi Germany, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He too was a part of violent persecution, not only of God's people, the Old Testament saints, but also many other Many other people were violently treated by the Babylonian Empire. Nevertheless, what we're also going to see is that God's grace, God's power has the ability to reach even someone like that, someone like that. So let's, uh, let's dive into this. You remember that uh, this series we've titled Clash of Cultures. We're covering the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Daniel was a faithful Jewish man who lived during a time when God's people were exiled. This happened roughly 600 BC. God's people were removed from the promised land by their enemies. They were taken into a foreign land under captivity. They were defeated and then exiled to the empire of Babylon. But through Daniel's life, through his ministry, we're able to learn how we can thrive in a culture that's opposed to God and opposed to his word. So at this point in the story, Daniel has ascended amongst the leadership of the Babylonian empire. Even though he's a foreigner, even though he refuses to worship their pagan gods, Daniel has still earned the trust of the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel acts as one of the king's closest advisors. And today's passage doesn't center so much on Daniel. As I said, it centers on King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the leader of this great, though brutal, empire. And even though the king worshipped many false gods, even though he had persecuted God's people, God still mercifully reaches out to him and teaches the king who really deserves the credit for the vast empire that he oversaw. So let's read these verses And then we'll get started. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 37. You guys ready for this? If you zone out, that's okay. Just zone back in. Get on board. It's all good. We'll get through it. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and enchanters, the Chaldeans and astrologers, they came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me the dream's interpretation. At last, 
Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my gods, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told Daniel the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and in the tree was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under the tree, the birds of the heavens lived in the tree's branches, and all flesh was fed from this tree. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He then proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. Lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound the stump with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's mind and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and may its interpretation be for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was found food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. The tree is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, king, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities break off from them by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over to you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and then my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand. None can say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who gets the credit? Is it John Lennon or Paul McCartney who's responsible for all of the Beatles' musical success? Was it Tom Brady or Bill Belichick who's the reason for the Patriots' football dynasty? Is it Jobs or Bill Gates who contributed most to the prevalence of personal computers. Who gets the credit for these amazing achievements? Music fans, sports fans, technophiles, we love to debate these sorts of questions. We share stats, stories, opinions for why this side of the debate deserves the credit over the other side. And on a human level, these sorts of disputes make for fun, sometimes contentious conversations. But what about in an ultimate sense? I mean, on the deepest level, who is responsible for the good things that happen in our lives? 
Who gets the credit for the success you've achieved in life? Who gets the acclaim for your growing family? Who gets the acclaim for your financial prosperity, for your fruitful ministry? Who gets the credit? That's the question Daniel chapter 4 causes us to wrestle with. Nebuchadnezzar was king over the Babylonian empire, but he's struggling to answer this question correctly. Who gets the credit for all of my success? You see, the Babylonian Empire and its capital city, Babylon, it was one of the greatest, if not the greatest kingdom to have existed to that point in history. The prophet Isaiah calls Babylon, quote, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans. It's in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. And the apostle John in the book of Revelation simply refers to it as Babylon the Great. Numerous times in Revelation, John calls it Babylon the Great. And as for King Nebuchadnezzar himself, one biblical historian refers to him as, quote, one of the most successful kings known to history. Nebuchadnezzar successfully defeated and ended the Assyrian Empire. He then ruled the Babylonian Empire for over 40 years. The king especially left a legacy for the way he beautified his capital city, Babylon. This includes constructing one of the so-called seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, as they're known. But not only did Nebuchadnezzar beautify the city of Babylon, he also fortified the city. For example, it's estimated that 164 million bricks were used for the city's northern outer defense wall. You can see an example of one of these. This one's in the British Museum of History. You can tell the writing on it. And what we know about this is that the king had printed on many of these bricks provided by King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, thousands upon thousands of times over, printed on countless bricks, the king said, I did this. I accomplished this. I deserve the credit. And in this way, the king was communicating to his subjects, humble yourself before me. Give your praise to me. So not only was King Nebuchadnezzar a great leader, he was also a very arrogant leader. He was swollen with pride and self-congratulation. But twice in the New Testament, we are told that God opposes the proud. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and in James chapter 4, verse 6, it says that God actively opposes those who live in pride. God is not neutral towards arrogance. And throughout Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see exactly how it is that God opposes the king's pride and brings him to a place of genuine humility. The first way that God confronts his pride is by warning him about it. God warns us about our pride. So Nebuchadnezzar begins retelling this story first by noting that he was at ease and that he was prospering in his palace. In other words, he was doing great. He didn't have a care in the world. 
But then his contentment is interrupted by this dream. It alarms him. It scares him. But at the same time, he doesn't quite know what the dream means. So he calls in all of his spiritual gurus, but they don't have any answers either. Then finally, he brings in Daniel to interpret the dream for him. And he describes the dream to Daniel that there was this great tree that grew up covering the whole world, reaching to heaven. The tree provided food and shade for all the animals. But then a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven declares, chop down the tree, but leave the stump. Put a band of iron and bronze around the stump. Then in verse 16, the voice personifies the tree and says, Let his mind be changed from a man's mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. And when Daniel hears about this dream, he immediately shares in the king's fear. He immediately shares in the king's alarm about the dream. The king can sense that Daniel is dismayed by the retelling of the dream. So he says in verse 19, Belteshazzar, let not the dream nor the interpretation alarm you. But Daniel's explanation of the dream is going to confirm that it was right for the king to be frightened. In verse 22, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, it is you. The tree is you. In other words, Daniel is saying to the king that it's him whose kingdom is about to be taken from him, and it's him who's about to lose his mind and be driven among beasts. In verse 27, Daniel concludes, Therefore, O king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so that there may perhaps be a lengthening to your prosperity. So through this dream and through its interpretation from Daniel, God is warning Nebuchadnezzar about his pride and how it's going to lead to a fall. So one area of constant warning for many of us is the dashboard of our car, right? Car dashboards have on them all sorts of lights and messages and signals that are supposed to alarm us when there's trouble with your car. And sometimes these messages can be so perpetual that you just instinctively ignore them. So in my last car, I kid you not, the check engine light was literally on the whole time I owned the car, about three years. I eventually just put a picture of my family over the light so that I wouldn't have to look at it anymore. But these different lights and messages and signals, they're meant to alarm us to take action. Dude, change the oil in your car. Put air in your tires. Check your engine. They're meant to get a response from us. Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, the dashboard of his life is lighting up. I mean, it's buzzing and dinging and flashing. God, through this dream, is trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He's warning Nebuchadnezzar that he needs to make a clean break with his life of sin. He's warning the king he needs to embrace humility by showing compassion to the poor and oppressed. And friends, you need to know that in the gospel of Jesus, you and I have received just such a similar warning. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus 
preaching ministry first begins, Matthew shares a one-sentence summary of Jesus' message. I mean, these are the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when his preaching ministry begins. And it's the word, repent. Not, I love you. Not, come to me, all you. No, the first word he confronts us with is our need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. And friends, repenting is doing exactly what Daniel calls for in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Repentance is making a clean break with our life of sin and then pledging ourselves to the kingdom of heaven. Repentance means taking myself off the throne of my life and submitting, surrendering all of my life to the lordship of Jesus. And so I got to ask, where do you see the warning lights flashing on the dashboard of your life? In other words, in what areas of your life are you clinging to sin? I call on you now, hear the gospel call to repent. Hear the warning of God to humble ourselves under the kingship of Jesus because God opposes the proud. And God actively works in our lives to bring us to a place of humility. He does this by warning us, but eventually if we don't respond, He starts to actively judge us for our sin. Lest we repent, God will, in His time, judge our sin. Just like I was able to ignore the check engine light on my car's dashboard, Nebuchadnezzar remains unresponsive to the warning of his dream. Instead, he continues in his boisterous self-confidence. Look at verse 30. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? In other words, once again, the king is saying, I did this. I accomplished this. I deserve the credit. And it's right in that moment, while the words are still in his mouth, that a word of judgment falls from heaven and his dream is fulfilled. The kingdom is taken from him. He's driven from among men. He loses his mind, eventually taking the form of a beast as his hair grows out, his nails grow out, wild and untamed. God keeps his word to judge. In an article on CNN.com, pediatric specialist Hansa Bargava says this, quote, Empty threats are common with parents and their kids know it. She then mentions the parent who rashly warns to give no Christmas presents this year if their toddler won't stop dropping their food on the floor. She shares about another mom who warns to withhold dessert from their disobeying child. Meanwhile, the dad immediately smirks and comments, yeah, right, you really going to do that? Bargava states again, quote, toddlers and preschoolers can easily pick up the difference between an empty threat and actual punishment. Well, despite three-year-olds apparently having a strong radar for empty threats, the king of Babylon, his threat level monitor is broken. His soul is so infected by arrogance that he won't repent. 
He refuses to acknowledge the divine warning, but God is no fickle parent, right? God makes no empty threats. He says what he means, and he does what he says. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is taken from him. His sanity, his mind is taken from him. And friends, just like God reached out to Nebuchadnezzar, God has spoken to us. God has filled his world with all sorts of evidence that we should worship him. The beauty and design of creation should evoke within us this sense of amazement for who God is and what he's done. As Joe quoted earlier, the psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul later in the book of Romans writes that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived by us ever since the creation of the world. So the created order is a witness and in some sense it is warning us that we should worship the creator God. The created order warns us that if we don't center our lives on our Creator, life is not going to be lived as it's meant to be lived. Instead, we should give all glory, honor, and praise to our Creator God. Furthermore, the Scriptures teach that God has given us a conscience. And our conscience, likewise, bears witness to each one of us that we've done evil things in our lives. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we struggle with arrogance and we struggle to live the righteous lives that our very own consciences demand that we should live. So in these ways, both God's creation and our conscience are a warning to us. They're warning us that if we fail to repent of our sin, if we fail to give all praise to God, then we, like Nebuchadnezzar, will be judged. And it's worth noticing again that Nebuchadnezzar's problem was not that he failed to perceive the warning. His problem was not that he didn't hear God's warning. His problem is that he was complacent about this warning. He heard the warning through his dream and then through Daniel, but then he went on living in unbothered contentment and self-centered arrogance. What about you? Are you complacent about the reality of sin in your life? Well, I urge you, behold the witness of creation that we have a creator God we will answer to. And I urge you, listen to the witness of your own conscience that speaks to the evil deeds each one of us have committed and repent of your sin. Trust in God's mercy before it's too late. And we answer for our crimes. Nebuchadnezzar's story relays to us, praise God, that if we do repent, if we do rightly respond to God's warning of judgment, then he will restore us by his grace. Through repentance, God restores us by his grace. Yes, the Bible is clear. God is a God of justice, and we will be held accountable by him. At the same time, we find out through Nebuchadnezzar's story that repentance toward God leads to restoration with God. Notice that it's only when Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven that his reason then returned to him. 
In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had to take his eyes off his self. He had been so self-obsessed and self-consumed. He was convinced of his own brilliance and ability. He gave all the credit to himself for the glorious accomplishments in his life. But when he lifted his eyes off himself, when he lifted his eyes toward heaven, it's then that his reason returns to him. And he then begins to bless the Creator God. So in the last few years, many of you may know the label narcissist and the diagnosis narcissism have become increasingly and widely used in our popular culture. If you don't know, narcissism is a condition whereby a person has, according to Britannica.com, quote, an excessive degree of self-esteem or self-involvement, a condition that is usually a form of emotional immaturity. And the term narcissism is derived from Greek mythology, especially the character known as Narcissus. The fable goes that Narcissus was remarkably and supremely beautiful. And one day, Narcissus goes to a fresh spring for some water, and as he bent down toward the surface of the water, he happened to catch a glimpse of himself reflected in the water. And he became so enamored with himself... He became so enamored with his own beauty that he couldn't take his eyes off of his reflection. He was so fixated on himself that he couldn't look away or move away, and he eventually died of starvation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is in a very similar situation. Like Narcissus, he's self-absorbed. But again, verse 34, when he lifts his eyes off of himself, when he lifts his eyes toward the God of heaven, it's then that his sanity, his reason is restored to him. It's only then that he can start to fulfill his created purpose to worship God, not himself. And it's only then when he repents that his kingdom is restored to him. So friend, where do you see narcissistic, Nebuchadnezzar-like arrogance in your own life? Do you look down on your co-workers? Do you put your own needs, your own desires ahead of your spouse? Are you unwilling to acknowledge your weaknesses to your friends? Are you resistant, maybe even offended by the gospel's call on your life to repent? Are you convinced in some way that you are superior? Are you convinced that you are always right? Are you convinced that you are worthy of the ultimate credit for building your little mini kingdom on earth with your money, your skills, your self-sufficiency? Friends, the truth is that Narcissus and Nebuchadnezzar aren't the only ones who suffer from an excessive self-esteem and self-involvement. We all do. Writing about pride, C.S. Lewis says, quote, It is the one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. 
We loathe pride when we hear about it in Narcissus' story. We are appalled by arrogance when we hear about it in Nebuchadnezzar's story. But what about our own story? Lewis calls pride the great sin. He calls it that because it's the sin underneath all our sin. Behind every sinful action, behind every sinful attitude is a prideful heart. A person convinced of their own greatness compared to others, compared to God even. So I call on you now, church, repent of your pride and humble yourself before the true king. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, but he was not in the ultimate eternal sense, king. But we are not also the true king or queen of our own life. Yes, we're called to take dominion over creation and take on different areas of life, but like Nebuchadnezzar, neither are we king or queen. We are not the ultimate eternal king. Instead, we are called to embrace humility. We are called to live as servants, servants of God and servants of one another. The gospel demands we humble ourselves before the true King Jesus. He is the ultimate eternal King. And though Jesus is forever worthy of all worship, Though he is the true king, he demonstrated servant-hearted humility, not by being self-obsessed, but by sacrificing himself so that you and I, prideful as we are, could be restored to God. Friends, humble yourself before King Jesus and experience the fullness of restoration, the fullness of a joyful, worshipful relationship with your Creator God. You are not God. You are just human. Furthermore, we are broken humans. Let's embrace humility. Let's repent of pride and let's exalt Him who is the true King of kings. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together, and I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gospel. We are grateful for the good news of your grace. God, thank you for the truth that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God, thank you for the gospel truth that you are a tender-hearted Father bringing us under your care as we become your sons and daughters through Christ. God, what amazing grace exists in the gospel. But Father, even as much grace as we have, each one of us must come to terms with the reality of sin in our lives. 
Each one of us must come to a place of brokenness, a place of neediness, a place of emptiness before you, a place of acknowledging our humanity that we are not you. We are just human. We are broken, sinful humans. And so, Father, we pray that now you would meet us in this place of brokenness, of neediness, of emptiness. Meet us in this place of confession where we own, where we're honest, honest with ourselves, honest with our community, and honest with you about what's really going on in our hearts. The pride, the selfishness, the sin that exists there. Meet us in this place of openness, transparency, and confession. In Jesus' name, amen.